All right, good morning. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10. Uh, Three weeks ago, when I was here last, we looked at the first 15 verses. And what I'd like to do this morning is really just look at verses 16 down through 26, Lord willing. But let's just, um, I'm just going to briefly, well, we'll start in verse 16. But what's happening here is... Jesus is calling his disciples, and he's going to be sending them out. And, you know, there comes a time when God has invested in us that it's time to put those things that we learn and that we grow in and that we've come to know about him and about ourselves. It's time to not only be encouraged of that ourselves, but then to take that out, because that's the intention of the gospel. It's good news. It was good news for us, and now we want to give that good news out to others, right? Because people need to hear good news today. I don't know if you noticed, but there's nothing good happening out there. But we need good news. And the best news that could ever be shared is, get this, that we're sinners. And that's, that's the bad news. But the good news is, is that Jesus has died for us, and that if we put our faith in him, we could have everlasting life. That's the best news. And that's the best gift that could ever be given to mankind, because I think we've proven over several thousand years now that we really don't know what we're doing. We really don't know how to get out of this mess that we're in. And the reason is because we have an old nature, and that old nature has to be confronted The old nature has to come into agreement with God who said that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And once I do that, then I I can confess my sin and I can walk in newness of life in Christ because of what he has done for me. He took the punishment upon himself for all of your sin and all of my sin, and God allowed that to be placed on his son for once, once and for all, one time. And Jesus became sin for us. He bore the penalty for our sin, and that is the best news going. It's not a news that's easy for the natural man to take in, because in order to come to Christ, you have to realize that you're a sinner. Not too many people on the planet are willing to confess that they're a sinner to begin with, and they certainly are not willing to confess of any sin that they've done. So therein lies the rub. There is the problem that we face, and by the way, that's the same problem that Jesus faced. It's the same problem that his disciples who were sent out that they faced, and we are going to experience the same thing. There are trials and persecutions coming our way if, if we are faithful. The Bible says that all who live godly in Christ Jesus might suffer persecution. No, it says shall suffer persecution. And that's a great message for Sunday morning, isn't it? Hey, God loves you, but you're going to go out and you're going to be attacked by wolves. Merry Christmas. Nobody wants to hear that. We want, to be, we want the warm fuzzies. We want to put on our slippers, be in our cloud drinking some really good coffee. We don't want to hear any bad news or difficult news. Well, folks, listen. We've got an eternity of pleasures forevermore, that godly pleasures forevermore with Christ 
in the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens and the new earth. And even in the thousand-year reign of Christ, even though that's going to be much better than anything we've ever known, it's still not going to be a walk in the park during that time, but we'll be in our new bodies. I mean, that's exciting for me. But to know that there is an eternal state waiting for us, and Revelation 21-22 tells us that, that's what I look forward to. And folks, that'll never end. So whatever I can do in this body, right now, on this planet, in this short amount of time, which in comparison to eternity is going to go by just like that, whatever I can do, I want to do it. I want to do it with all of my heart and with all of my soul. After all, doesn't he deserve my all? I mean, by reason of creation alone, not to mention by rights of redemption, when he redeemed me, I'm not my own anymore. I belong to him. How many of you belong to Jesus? Raise your hand. I belong to him, hopefully all of us. But you know, even if you didn't raise your hand this morning, I hope today, by the end of the service, you'll raise your hand. Because the Lord of creation, the Lord of glory loves you more than you can possibly imagine. And it doesn't matter what you've done. I don't care if you're a serial killer back in the 70s. You can come to Christ today. Well, that's a stark contrast, isn't it? But that's how great his salvation is. That's how great his love is. That's how great his forgiveness is. So Jesus gathers his 12 together. They've already been called, and we'll look at that in a little bit. But he calls them, he brings them together, and he sends them out two by two. And he does that for a very good reason. But there's something so wonderful about this. Before he sends them out, he prepares them. Like a good shepherd, He prepares them. Jesus has always been preparing us. Do you understand? I mean, even when we've looked in the Bible and we've we've been going through revelation of things yet future to us, he's told us what's coming so that when it comes, we won't faint. I love that about him. Can you imagine living in the world, seeing what's going on and knowing the end of it all and certainly seeing things ramping up and it's looking very, we're getting there, folks. Jesus could return at any minute for the church. And I hope you're hanging on that because that is the blessed hope. That's what I'm looking for. That's the next thing on the prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. So looking forward to that. But he prepares us. He told us in advance what's coming, that we wouldn't be afraid. And then before he sends his disciples out, he tells them, by the way, guys, it's not going to be a walk in the park. You know, when I got saved, I went and told everybody I could think of, my family, friends, everybody. And I thought there would be this wonderful, like, everybody picking me up on their shoulders and going, we, we believe, we believe, and, you know, and I'm so excited. And I am, and I was. And then to realize, as I start talking, I don't get the response that I'm hoping for. Because God had filled me with his spirit, because I was born again, my, whole, my eyes and my understanding were open, and I'm looking out at people telling them the truth, and they're looking like, we want the old Rob back. I don't want this new Rob. I don't want Rob 2.0. I want, I want Rob, I want Elmer Fudd here. That's, uh, I, I want Rob 1.0. No. no, I want Rob 1.0. I want that dirty, sneaky, scoundrel rotten sinner. I want him back rather than this other guy. And it didn't happen the way I thought. And Jesus tells his disciples, 
Same is true for you guys. I hate to say it. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. If they crucified me, they're going to crucify you. But I've given you all power, and I've given you everything you need to accomplish it. And it is my great joy, and isn't it yours as well, to discover the will of God for your life and then go out and do it with all of your heart. So let's read verse 16. So he calls them, he prepares them, he tells them what's coming. And then he says, behold, verse 16, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Thank you, Jesus. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. And you will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Now brother will deliver up brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all men for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. And when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly I say to you, You will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will be revealed, that will not be revealed, excuse me, and hidden that will not be known. Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, how you just bring us to an end of ourselves. Lord, thank you for loving us, and just prepare our hearts, Lord, and send us out. In Jesus' name, amen. Notice back in verse 1, I just want to quickly review the first 15 verses. It's been uh, three weeks. (laughs) So notice in verse 1, he called his 12 disciples to him, and he gave them power, notice, over unclean spirits to cast them out to heal all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of disease. Now, the names of the 12 apostles are these. Now, I want you to notice the order and how he orders them, because that's significant. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. That sounds like a pairing right there. Don't you agree? And then James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, another pairing. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus, and Lebaeus, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the uh, Canaanite, it's not what you think, a Canaanite is actually probably the right word, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Now we know that God had uh, that Jesus had already called his disciples. Um, we, we know that he first called Philip uh, in John's Gospel in chapter one verse forty three, and after that Simon Peter and Andrew they were brothers. He calls them in Matthew four, and then finally in James and John Zebedee's sons he called them in Matthew's Gospel chapter four verse twenty one and twenty two. And then finally, fourthly, he calls Matthew, the tax collector, in Matthew uh, chapter 9, verse 9. And then in Mark's gospel, the previously named disciples are listed with the addition of a handful of more disciples, Bartholomew, the same as Nathaniel, Thomas, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, same as Lebaeus, 
Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot. And then finally here in Matthew, all the above were put into a different order uh, here in Matthew, but Peter is listed first, but Judas is always listed last. And why is Judas listed last? Because he betrayed Christ. And Peter is listed first. I love that. But notice that they were all in a certain order. They were in pairs. In fact, in Mark's gospel, it tells us that he called the 12 to himself and he began to send them out two by two and he gave them power over unclean spirits. And so why two by two? Why didn't he just send out them all in one great big you know, group? You know, that would be pretty intimidating. But notice Jesus doesn't need to intimidate anybody. He sends them out not one by one. He sends them out two by two. And why? Why two by two? Well, perhaps, there's a wonderful verse in Ecclesiastes that says, two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fail, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he fails, for he has no one to help him up. Two by two, such wisdom in the, in the pairing of people as they go out. Other possible reasons why Jesus may have done this, uh, certainly for encouragement. When you're feeling down and you have nobody to talk to, isn't it nice to have somebody else there? And certainly God can be that comfort, and he is. He is that comfort for us. But when he sends these men out, he sends them two by two, certainly for encouragement. And maybe he even, and I believe he did this, he paired them up according to his knowledge of their temperament of who they were, how they would gel with one another. Jesus knew all of this about all 12 of them, and he knew who to pair up with who. And so um, he does that, and certainly for protection. There were still wild animals at this time, and if one is attacked by a wolf, the other one can beat him with a stick. Somebody's attacked on the road and trying to be mugged for their money or a sack of coins, the other one can fight the other one off. And certainly for accountability, as they would go through the different towns, they would be accountable to one another. And the things that they saw, both of them would see, and they would both give an account of those things that have happened, and certainly for strength. So going on in verse 5, it says, These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans. And notice in verse 5 something really interesting. That Jesus, before telling them where to go, he tells them where not to go. He tells them where not to go. And why is that significant? Well, the Lord had a plan. (laughs) He had a plan, and his plan is unique to each one of us. Our service to God is not cookie cutter, and neither was their service. It was going to be unique for each of these, these two men that would be sent out. And, and, and God works that way in us too. There's no two of us alike. There's not one of us alike the other. And God has a plan. And, and, and what it may look like in your life may be different from somebody else. And as much as the Lord might use us, he also knows what he wants to accomplish in each of our lives for our own growth as well. So it's not so much what we do for him, but it's also what he wants to do in us. We minister, and we also get ministered to. We should never think that we are the man or the woman sweeping in, you know, swinging in on a vine uh, uh, and be the man or the woman of the hour to save some aboriginal tribe in South America. 
that me, the powerful American who has it all together, I'm going to swing in on a vine and I'm going to save this aboriginal group? Well, God may want to do that, but you may find yourself going to the jungle and getting malaria. And you may sit there for a week or two being nursed back to health by some tribal doctor before you share the life-saving gospel with that tribe. So you're ministering, but you're also getting ministered to. And very rarely is it just a one-way street. God is using you, but he's also working in you at the same time. It's a wonderful thing. It's almost like it's on-the-job training all the time. And that's exactly what it is. It's OJT. It's on-the-job training. Every single thing we do is on-the-job training. But God's calling is unique, and it's wonderful. And when God sends us out, he's already prepared our hearts. And when he does that, we will love what he has called us to do. And it's God's job to create that burden in your heart, and then he sends you. Because we are not all called to go to a remote village in South America and live in grass huts and eat bugs. We're not all called to do that. But God equips, he prepares the heart, and then sends out those who are wired for that, and they're happy to do it. Some enjoy living in a rugged fashion, and we shouldn't compare ourselves with other servants whom God is using. It's not fair, and it's not right. Don't worry if you don't have a propensity to do those things, because you you don't need to worry about that. God's got it covered. He's got people who are fine with that kind of thing. And even if you're not fine with that thing, before he sends you, he's going to prepare you and it's not going to be a big deal. Because your overwhelming desire is to please him and you're going to love whatever it is that he's called you to do so much, it's going to be no big deal. It's not going to be a big deal. And you find yourself in this wonderful little bubble. And that's the mystery of God's calling. I think it's so wonderful. Is before I came to Christ to think that I would be up here doing what I'm doing and pastoring a church... I would, have laughed you. I would have laughed at you until I was at a hernia. There is no way I wanted this. This was not my plan for my life. But guess what? God changes hearts. He changed, he's changing my heart. He's changed my heart. He's continuing to change my heart. And as I go along, I find myself like a kid in a candy store, sampling all the lollipops, going, how did I get here? And he's like, isn't it great? I'm like, yeah. He goes, are you serving me? Are you enjoying yourself? I can't imagine doing anything different. That's it. (laughs) It's that simple. So don't worry about God sending you to the aboriginal tribe in South America. He may put on your heart something. What's God put on your heart? Do you have a burden for something? Some people group? Maybe it could be your family. It could be coworkers. There might be somebody who God says, I want you to work on this guy, this woman, I want you to minister to them. I want them to see you in action. And I'm going to put you through some stuff, and you're not going to like it, but they're going to be watching you. Are you willing? Are you willing to be looked at? Are you willing to be examined for the soul of somebody else? And the right answer is, absolutely, God. Do whatever you got to do. Remember when Jesus lightly rebuked Peter after his resurrection? It says this in John chapter 21. And this is on the shore of Galilee when Peter was wondering what Jesus was going to do with John's life because Jesus just revealed to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. And 
Peter looks around and goes, Lord, what about him? So Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who also had leaned on his breast at supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? Again, he's comparing himself. And see, if it happened to the disciples, it's not very uncommon for it to happen to us too. What are you going to do with John, Jesus? And Jesus said, if I will that he remain till I come, what's that to you? You follow me. Don't worry about him. i got a plan for him, and it's different for yours. It's different than yours. So we don't need to worry about how God is going to use us. That is his job, and he does a great job at changing hearts, doesn't he? What I never thought would be possible, I find possible now, and I'm okay with it. In fact, I'm excited about it. What does it tell us in Philippians? And this is a secret, too. Paul, speaking to them, he said, Therefore, my beloved brethren, as you have always Obey, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. And here it is. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, don't stop there because you might think, that well, it's all about me for my salvation. No, because the next verse says, For it is God who works in you to will and then to do of his good pleasure. That is the secret. I don't have to get there. God gets me there. I just got to be patient. I got to let him do it. I got to be prayerful. I got to be willing. Are you willing? Just be willing. Lord, I'm willing to do whatever you want, but you've got to change this rascal heart. And I can almost hear a voice from heaven, well, that is a challenge, but it's not a problem for me, Rob. (laughs) I got you. And I have a way of getting you to point A to point B without you even being aware of it. I'm so good about that, God says. I can take this rascal heart, this self-centered, self-focused heart, and I can get you, I can turn you around to where you're like, all you want to do is bless somebody else. And all you're concerned about is what somebody else is going through. I can do that. Am I not God, God would say? But I would encourage you to not do anything unless you have that burden and that calling. (laughs) You know, pray and get your heart right. Get the confirmation. God will equip you and then go. Do you remember a missionary by the name of Jim Elliott back in the 1950s? He had a great love for the Aucan tribe in Ecuador in South America. And God prepared his heart. And he went and he ministered to these people, this aboriginal group in South America and Ecuador. But after he arrived there, they ended up killing him and four others in 1956 while he was trying to minister to them. But afterwards, after his death, that tribe came to Christ through the ministry of his wife, Elizabeth. Because she returned later, after they had killed her husband and the four others, she returned with her infant daughter, Valerie, and the sister of one of the other men who, were, who was killed. And they minister, they live with that tribe. And certainly they know what they did to their husbands. And they minister, and they continue to love them. And you know what Elizabeth Elliot had to say after that? She said this. She said, the deepest things that I have learned in my, in my own life have come from the deepest suffering And out of the deepest waters and the hottest fires have come the deepest things I know about God. Notice she didn't boast about what she did for God, leading this tribe to Christ, but rather she boasted on what God was doing in her life. It was never about her. It was about Christ, and it was about them, those people. And again, has God put a burden on your heart for something or someone? or a group of people, pray. 
Seek the Lord's face, be discerning, and then go after it. And then get after it. So now the Lord says to his disciples in verse 6, back in our text, says, But go now, rather, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The lost sheep of the house of Israel are the Jews. And so why the Jews? Why the Jews? Well, wasn't it to them that, the, that God committed the oracles of God, the scripture, to? Wasn't it through them, through the Jewish people? Jewish prophets, wasn't it through them that the oracles of God, the scriptures came to us? Wasn't it through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and through the line of Judah that Christ came? Wasn't it through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah to Christ that the promises and the prophecies came that were all pointing to Jesus Christ? And on top of that, what does it say? Paul speaking to the Romans. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And now notice the order, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or the Gentile. There is an order that God had planned because of the specialness of his people, the Jewish people. He came through the Jewish line. He reached them first. It was a great privilege and an honor for them to be used the way God had used them. He had you know, given them the scriptures. They were the protectorate of those things. The Old Testament prophets lost their lives standing for the truth. And Jesus, he came to his own. He came to his own people, the Jews, and his own didn't receive him. And Jesus later would send others to go to the Gentiles. We know that Peter in Acts 10, he was first sent to Cornelius, this Italian group of men and women, to these Gentiles. They were saved through Peter's ministry. And then Paul would, send, would be sent to ultimately to the Gentiles, and Peter would continue ministering to the Jews. But notice what he says, as you, keep, as you go preaching... Say the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely you have given. Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staff, for a worker is worthy of his food. Now whatsoever town or city you enter, inquire in it who is worthy and stay there till you go out. And when you go into a household, greet it. And if the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words, then when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. And we talked about that last time we were together. But notice now in verse 16. Jesus says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be as wise as serpents and gentle as doves. This doesn't sound like a very good thing, does it? But Jesus is telling them again in advance that they are going into enemy territory. Hey, you're a seal going into a pool of great white sharks. You're in the sheep in the midst of wolves. You're going to be torn apart. The likelihood of it happening is pretty great. But notice, while it is true that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, Psalm 24 tells us that it's also true that Satan is currently the ruler of this earth for a time. 
What does Paul tell us in Ephesians 2, verse 2? He calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. And three times in John's gospel, Jesus referred to Satan as the ruler of this world. What? The ruler of this world? I thought you were the ruler of... Yes, he is. He's the, he's the maker of heaven and earth. He's allowing Satan for a time to have ownership, to have dominion over this world. And that's why you see such a glorious place right now in the world. Because Satan is having dominion over it. Isn't it a wonderful place? It just makes you want to have ice cream and sit by the fire and just relish in his goodness. No, there's nothing good about him. Everything is messed up. There's nothing good. Everything he touches turns to gravel and it's mangly and mangy and old and moldy and ready for the fire. Three different times in John's Gospel... In John 12, verse 31, John 14, verse 30, and also in John 16, verse 11. But in John 14, Jesus says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. So it ought not to surprise us when, the, when we minister in the world and we experience resistance and persecution, it ought not to take us by surprise. But we are truly in a spiritual battle. Do you feel it? Have you experienced it? Are you experiencing the spiritual battle for your soul? Even as a Christian, the devil can't have your soul, but what he can do is he can ruin your witness. He can take a, a man or a woman of God and he can totally get you in the flesh. If you're not careful and abiding in Christ, he will get you in the flesh and cause you to do certain things because you haven't yielded those things to God yet. And he will mess with you and people are watching. I can't believe you said that. I can't believe you did that. You call yourself a Christian. You're the one who gave me a Bible last Christmas and you put this thing in the, you know, the front page, you know, love you, brother. God bless you. <laughs> Hypocrite, right? That's what the world tells us. And the devil wants to trip you up. He can't take your salvation, but boy, can he mess with your head. Boy, can he ruin you to the point where you have no, nobody wants to hear you, nobody wants to talk to you anymore because you've blown it so much. Yes, you're going to glory, but you're kind of on a shelf because you've allowed these things in your life. And that's why we have to abide in Christ. But it is a spiritual battle. What does it tell us in 2 Corinthians? Paul, speaking to them, says, For though we walk in the flesh, we, we do, we, we walk in the flesh. I'm, I'm flesh and bone, and I walk in the flesh. We do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, that they are mighty in God for the pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. That is the battle, folks. And it's been said that the first casualty in any battle is truth. And I believe that is true. Deception. Getting your eyes off the truth, maligning the truth. Today, played out in Congress, the media, the public school board meetings, colleges, universities, courtrooms, and businesses all over this land, there is a battle for truth. And you and I have the truth. We have the truth. We have the truth here, and we have the truth in here because the Spirit of God indwells us. We have the truth, and the truth is a person as well. Jesus, didn't he say... 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes unto the Father except by me. He says, I am literally the only truth. I am the only way. I am the only life. There is no other truth outside of God. In his word, there's no other truth. You've got it all, and we have the truth. So let them redefine marriage, and let them redefine gender. We have the truth. Because God has defined what marriage is. It's between one man and one woman. Yes, there are scriptures to back that up. Very easy to do. And it's between one man and one woman. He made them male and female. There's a lot of scriptures about that too. He made them male and female. In Isaiah chapter 45, verse 18, For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens... Who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited, I am the Lord and there is no other. Hallelujah. I am the Lord, he says, and there is no other. I don't know of any other Savior, he says. I love that area around Isaiah 45 and 46. Read through it because he boasts about himself and it's so glorious because there's only one who can boast about himself because it's true. I know of no other Savior beside me. I, the Lord, am he. There is no one like me. I speak the end from the beginning. I speak of things to come before they come to pass. I do all these things. I am the Lord, the God who made thee. Wow. I think he's got the clout. You know, when you look at his curriculum vitae, looks pretty good. But God has the right by creation to do as he pleases for his purposes. So who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe Mr. Fancy Pants, Ph.D. from Harvard or Yale? Now, again, if you've gone to Harvard or Yale, don't take offense to this because your heart is right, I'm sure. But not everybody's heart is right. And there's nothing wrong with education. But are you going to believe them who speak against the word of God? Never cave into the lies and the deceptions that are in the world. Hold fast to the word of God. And why do we do that? Very simply, the word of God is living and powerful, Hebrews tells us. Powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Notice the, 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 the fineness of it, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. Where's the division between soul and spirit? I have no clue whatsoever. And any theologian that can tell you, well, I can tell you exactly how we parse this. Probably not telling you the truth. Soul and spirit, good luck with that one. Or what about of the joints and the marrow? Good luck with that one too. But the word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I love that, don't you? In Ephesians 6, verse 10, the armor of God. We are in a spiritual battle, and the word of God is our only method of offense. Everything else is defensive. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We don't, do we? It can get that way. Uh, The world wants to fight And they will use the only method that they know of, and that's through guns and knives and spears and bombs. That's all they know. But folks, you and I are the only ones who have tools of warfare that they can't even comprehend. 
But do we believe in those tools? Do we believe these things that we're about to read? And certainly, do we believe that the Word of God is able to do it? I mean, really. Because you, you find out really quick in your own life as you go through it, where, where am I really at, Lord? Am I really standing on your word, or is it just theory in my head? See, that's the whole purpose of our getting together. God wants to get this stuff into us. He wants to reveal it to us in real time in our lives. That's when Christianity takes off. Because no longer is it just a bunch of theory in my head. It's about, no, this is what the Bible says, and therefore I'm going to do it. And then when I do it, I realize, wow, it worked. And it wasn't easy either. Sometimes it is. Sometimes you feel like you're, you're trying to like, floss a great white shark, and he's just not going to have it, you know? I have a thing about great whites. So you, you, you guys, you know, I, I grew up in Florida. I spent a lot of time in the ocean. I really don't like them, but I'm fascinated by them. They, and who wouldn't? I mean, they got a mouthful of teeth. I mean, that's a Pepsodent commercial, you know? But notice what, what Paul tells the Ephesians. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, things that are invisible, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand. Just stand your ground, Christian, because everything in the world is trying to push you off the mark, to push you off and to push you back, and you just stand there. Can we stand? Let's stand on the word of God. It's all we've got and it's all we need. And we've got one tool of offense. Notice. First, the, the, the defensive weapons. Have your waist girt about with truth. We have that. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. That righteousness is given to us by Christ. Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And above all, taking the shield of faith with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and the helmet of salvation. And finally, the only thing offensive is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. We don't go out and skewer people with it. But by mentioning the Word of God, it caught, it, things do happen. And that's the challenge for you and I because we think, well, it's just words. Well, those words are powerful. Weren't they powerful when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness for 40 days, when Satan tempted him in those three different ways? How did Jesus respond? Well, you know what? The, uh, the paper on the, online, you know, if you go to WW, it says this. No, he, he says, let it be, this is what was written, and he speaks from Deuteronomy. The devil attacks him again. He speaks from Deuteronomy. The devil attacks him again. He quotes again from Deuteronomy. And finally the devil's like, I'm out of here. Not getting through to this guy. Because what was his defense? Was it his own feelings? <laughs> I really don't feel like it. No, it was the word of God. I want to encourage you. In the word of God. Be built up in the word of God. Trust the word of God. Read the word of God. Read it. Put it in a blender and drink the word of God. Whatever you've got to do, get it into you. <laughs> Maybe it would be a good idea to believe the word of God. Jesus did. 
In Luke's gospel, chapter 6, verse 22, Jesus speaking, remember the Beatitudes, he says, Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and they revile you and cast out your name as evil, notice, for the Son of Man's sake. It's not because you've done something wrong, but it's for his sake. By us speaking about Christ and and sharing his word, if you experience persecution and difficulty, praise God. That means you're doing it right. If you're getting the sticks and the goads, you better believe you're doing it right. If people are blaspheming your name and telling you, you know, this guy's just an idiot. I can't stand to be around him. Everything, he, he just, he's so pieced out. Everything is going to pot around him, and he's just like walking like, what's the matter with this guy? Has he lost his mind? No, he's the only guy with his head that's on straight. He's the only guy. That has an effect on people. When you endure persecution, you enter into a great company of saints who have gone before you. And my hope is that my name and yours will be added to that chapter in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. And at the very least, even if my name is not written there, I at least want to hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Don't you? Is there anything that I would not do for him? Is there anything that I would withhold from him after all that he's done for you and for me? Is there anything that I would say, no, Lord, I I can't do that? And you know, here's the beautiful thing about Christ, is I did say no many times, and he was just so patient to wait. He was, and he'll be the same way with you. Now, I would encourage you to, when he gives those overtures, that you jump into the boat as quickly as possible. But if you're like, no, not yet, he's like, okay. I got some more work to do. And I can tell you firsthand that he's done that in me. And he still loves me, even though in the past I rejected him. And even as a Christian, I said, not yet, not yet. No, I got better plans. It's really not, biblically, I know it's not right, but that's how I feel. So I'm just going to push this stuff off the side. I'll come back to that later. And God's going, okay, we'll see you in a year. When that circumstance happens, and this is how wonderful he is, There's going to come a time, there's going to be an instance, there's going to be a consequence, there's going to be something that's going to happen in your life, and Rob, you're going to fall apart, and I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be right there for you, and I'm going to change your heart right at that moment, and then you're going to say, Lord, I was a fool for denying you, even as a Christian, I was a fool for saying no, will you forgive me? And he's like, of course I will, of course I will, now let's go get it, let's get after it. Don't you just love that? Be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Serpents have this persona of being cunning and wise, and perhaps it's because of their bodily movements. They seem calculating, and they seem precise. They're just kind of looking around. Have you seen the intensity of a snake? You look at a snake, and he's looking at you, and you're like, are you going to strike, or are you going to stay there for a while? And he's all coiled up, and he's like slinking around, and you're like, Or to be as wise as a serpent and cunning as a serpent, but gentle as a dove. Has anybody been attacked by a flock of doves? No, this is not Alfred Hitchcock where the crows are coming after you. Never did I see a white dove in that picture. It's crows. Never been attacked by a dove before. 
We're to be gentle and harmless as doves. And that's hard. It's hard because we live in a time where things are really desperate. And some Christians find themselves being pushed so much by what's going on in the world, they are tempted to go into the natural and take care of things in the natural. And folks, we have to be really careful about that. God hasn't called us to have a, a militia and an army. Not, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that in the, nat- in the natural for you know, protecting families and houses and stuff like that. But you understand what I'm saying. We're not to be going on the offensive and harming people. But beware of many, says in verse 17, for they'll deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. This certainly happened to Jesus and Paul on a few occasions. And there are the uh, expectations of going out, or these, excuse me, are the expectations of going out into the world to proclaim and preach the gospels. To the the gospel, I'm sorry, singular, not plural. And experiences vary. And again, I love the fact that God has given us the big picture And he also tells us what we can expect when we go out. And it's not going to be easy, is it, sharing that truth with other people? Because they have to be confronted with this sin nature. And it's not always easy. I didn't come to Christ without a fight. As soon as he began ministering to me, I fought it like tooth and nail. And he finally won. Because he always wins. I want him to win. Satan's hold over me was strong, and God was much bigger, much more powerful. But he says in verse 18, you'll be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. And the disciples would be brought before kings and magistrates. Remember what God spoke to Ananias in Acts chapter 9. Excuse me. In Acts chapter 9, remember... After Paul's conversion, he was blind for a season, for a couple days. And the Lord said to Ananias, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And then Ananias says, "Uh, Lord, uh, did you know about Saul? Did you know that he was the guy going and gathering up Christians and taking them off to jail and putting them? Were you aware of that? And God's like, yeah, I'm aware of it. And God tells him, go. Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name, notice, before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul, in subsequent chapters of Acts, would stand before magistrates at Philippi. When he and Silas were wrongfully uh, imprisoned and, 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 and Paul called for them to have the magistrates come out and release them because they were Roman citizens uncondemned. Paul would stand before the Jewish Sanhedrin in Jerusalem and stand before Felix in Acts chapters 23 and 24. And then he appears before Felix and Herod Agrippa in Acts 25 and 26 before finally being sent off on his last missionary journey to Rome to meet Caesar Nero, who ultimately would cut off his head. And God told him, didn't he tell Ananias? Isn't it funny that God told Ananias first. He didn't go to Paul and say, Paul, I'm going to send you before magistrates and governors and kings, and you're going to speak on my behalf. He didn't say it to Paul you know, first. He told it to Ananias. 
And I'm sure Ananias probably shared that same message. And Paul is like, you know what? For all that he has done in my life, I'm willing. Because did you, did you see Paul's conversion? He was literally, this is what real repentance looks like. He's walking on his way to, to Damascus to rouse up Christians and take them to jail and to bring them before the Jerusalem council and have them put to death or imprisoned. He's walking, he's on his way, and God interrupts him and spanks him and sends him in the opposite direction. And Paul was so blown. His mind was... He's like, if this is Almighty God who I've been serving, this is Almighty God that I've been resisting... Paul, you, how hard is it for you to kick against the goads? I've been trying to get your attention, Paul. Do you understand? Got it now, Lord. <laughs> you got it now. Whatever you say, I'm doing. <laughs> and Paul repented. Immediately, he turned and he went the opposite direction. So much so that Ananias had to remind God, you remember this guy, he was killing people. I know, but go tell him that he's going to have to stand before magistrates and governors and kings. And by the way, he's going he's gonna to understand what suffering is. But folks, we need to contend for the faith too. What did Jesus' half-brother tell us? Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered to all the saints. The word contend, literally in the Greek, there's, there's two different words, two different root words that make up this word in the Greek. And one of them is, um, it means to struggle or compete for a prize. Literally to fight and labor fervently or strive to obtain something with difficulty and dangers. That's what it means to contend. And when we contend for the faith, you better believe that there's going to be difficulties and sometimes even dangers. But we need to enter the battle for the truth of the word of God. God didn't call us to a fight for a political party. But if we're going to fight for something, let it be for the truth of the word of God. That is going to be the thing that trumps everything else. Sorry for the pun there. But it's going to be more important than anything else. Anything else. That is the thing that we need to be focused on more than anything else. Certainly do those other things. They're important. Don't get me wrong. However, there's one that is more important, and that better be the A list. That better be the plan A in our lives. Amen? Stand on the word of God. Make no apologies. The battle right now in our culture concerning marriage, gender, and especially the LGBTQ agenda against our kids in the school, it can be easily won with Scripture. We have the truth. We have the foundation. It's been around for a lot longer than any thoughts that they even had. But we have to be willing to stand on the Scripture, and we have to be faithful to proclaim it with boldness and not, not, not let anyone corner us, shame us with some kind of new data or the opinions of those with positions of authority, whether it be local, federal, or state authority. Don't let them corner you and say, you have to give in. No, I'm not. I'm going to stand on the truth. What have you got? Nothing. You've got nothing. I've got everything. I'm standing on the rock. Didn't Jesus say, stand on the rock? You're going to stand on a rock or are you going to stand on the shifting sand that's just going to be eroded away? Folks, the world is on shifting sand. 
and you and I have the truth of the word of God, we stand on that, nobody can touch us. Let them come. I'm standing on the truth of the word of God and don't be ashamed of it. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Stand on it. Proclaim it and stand for it. And the world is, makes you feel like an idiot, don't they? Oh, you poor thing. It's so horrible to see this. He's so dependent. Jesus is your crutch. Yes. He's more than a crutch to me. He's everything. He's my foundation and everything. What is your crutch? What is your crutch? Something that some university professor told you from somebody else? The foundation, folks, is there for us. The truth, the foundation of the word of God. Stand on it. Don't be afraid of it. Stand on it and don't be afraid of anybody else. You have got the authority of Almighty God on your shoulders. You've got the authority of Almighty God. No one can take you off of that rock. Stand on it. But again, we don't fight a physical battle. Maybe it becomes physical. I'm certainly not going to initiate it, but if it comes to me, I'm going to do what I can. But our battle's spiritual. And we have to defend it that way. And it's with a life of boldness and words that penetrate the heart. The word of God penetrates the heart. Don't ever forget that. You can read uh, any book. You can read a, a novel that you can put out at the yard sale for 25 cents. But the word of God, didn't we just read it in, in Hebrews? It's living. It's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. That means that the word of God is different than any other book in the entire history of the world. There's nothing like it because when you quote it, demons flee. When you quote it, hearts are changed. Do you understand that? As we've seen it. We know it's true in our own life. We, it, it's, 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 it's wounded us and brought us to a glory. What do I say to that? Thank you, God. It makes no sense to me. These are just words on a page. Ah, they are words on the page, but they're my words. And my words have power. No other words have power but this. This has power. I love what it says in Thessalonians. It says, Paul speaking to them, speaking of a time yet to come, he says, the coming of the lawless one, speaking of the Antichrist, is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, Lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish. And why do they perish? Here it is. Why is the world perishing? Because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Do you see that? The love of the truth. The truth is loving, even though it stings a little bit. When you tell the truth, you are giving the truth to somebody, and it's, it's truth. If it is truth, it's going to sting, and it doesn't always feel good. It doesn't always feel good to receive sometimes, but the truth is the truth, and it changes things. Does it not? It does. Because they did not receive the love of the truth. The truth is love because God is love. God is also the truth. He is the <laughs> He's the way, the truth and the life. God is love. And the truth is love. They did not receive the love 
of the truth. Notice verse 19. But when they deliver you up, don't worry about what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. And I believe that in, in Acts chapter 4, remember when uh, Peter and John stood before the Sanhedrin because they, were, uh, they had healed the man on Solomon's porch, and the man was miraculously healed, and the, the religious leaders got all upset about that. They took them into their council, And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we are judged this day for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all people in Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Nazareth, whom you have crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you hold. Do you think Peter had knew what he was going to say before they... it, It was given to him, I believe, at that very moment. Don't worry about what you're going to say, because when you stand, I will give you the words to say. I don't think Peter prepared this at all. I think it just happened at the moment when the question was asked. How did he know what question they were going to ask? I don't believe he knew what question they were going to ask. But the Holy Spirit did the same in us, and he'll, or in them, and he'll do it in us as well. Now, brother, verse 21, will deliver up brother to death. And these are things that he's preparing his disciples for. Now brother will deliver up brother to death, and father, uh, his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And what a crazy thing. What a crazy thing. Jesus would say in, uh, uh, in Matthew chapter 10, Do not think I have come to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Yes, he is the prince of peace. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. It is a spiritual battle. And the truth is going to create some sparks. Don't be surprised if it does. If you're doing it right, it's going to cause some sparks. I also believe that this passage, this verse that we're looking at right now, verse 21, is also speaking of a time yet future to us in the great tribulation. Remember in Matthew 24, what did Jesus say in verse 9? Speaking to his disciples, and he says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. So it's not only something that is going to happen, guys, when you go out. He's telling us to his disciples. It's not only going to happen now, but it's also something that's going to happen yet future. Future generations, they need to read this because they're, they're going to be in the thick of it as well. But this is not uncommon for a, a father to turn over his son and a son to turn over his, his daughter-in-law or whatever. The fanaticism of Nazi uh, in, in World War II One author said, the fanaticism of Nazi doctrines destroyed family ties and and indoctrinated children, they betrayed their parents, believing their duty to the state superseded filial devotion. This was slavery of the most detestable kind when love was sacrificed upon altars of nationalism. And honor, truth, and goodness became features found only in history books. It's not uncommon for this to happen. 
It happened in World War II. It's going to happen. It'll continue to happen. So don't be surprised, he says to his men before he sends them out, if these things happen in your family, for a man's enemies sometimes will be those of his own household. Not always. And you'll be hated, verse 22, by all for my name's sakes, but he who endures to the end will be saved. Notice that we're guilty by association. Because we belong to to Jesus, we'll be guilty by association. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. And what did Timothy, what did Paul say to Timothy? Yes, and all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It may be light in our country. We don't have like a great deal of persecution in our country. It may just be somebody disdaining you or saying things about you, you know. Our our affliction or our persecution in this country really hasn't been too awful like we see in the first century. It may get that way. But in our country, because we still have one of the the greatest country in the world, it's still built on Judeo-Christian principles. And there's still hope. So we don't experience persecution like many others do. For surely I say to you, you will not, have not gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he will be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his own household? And Paul certainly knew this very well. He would go on in Philippians and say, All things that were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. He knew the price of, of, of discipleship. He knew the cost that sometimes happens following Jesus. He says, Indeed, I have counted all things for loss, for the excellency and the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. And Jesus finally in verse 26 says, Therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be made known. God will see to it that all things are manifest in his time. Do you know that for those who reject Christ, and this is not an exciting thing at all, but when those who reject Christ, and this is recorded for us in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, but those who stand at the great white throne judgment, unbelievers who stand at that great white throne judgment, It says in Revelation 20 there, it says that a book will be opened, which is the book of life. And then other books will be opened, which are their deeds. God has a recording of everything that that unbeliever has ever said and done that has been against him and against others. He's got a perfect memory, and it's all recorded. And as the perfect judge, they will stand before him and say, I've done nothing wrong. And he will open the books and say, and he's probably able to do this for myriads of millions of people in an instant. He can just say, receive what you have done. And he can just somehow implant that into their hearts 
and every one of them are going to drop to their knees. But unfortunately, there's going to be no hope for them because they will be resurrected from the dead and then sent to the lake of fire for eternity and they will never die. But you and I, Christian, we will also stand before God as believers, as born again. The Bible calls it the Bema Seat or the judgment seat of Christ. It's not something to worry about in the sense of salvation. If you're a believer, you're going to go to heaven. But when we get to heaven, there's going to be a a tribunal where God is going to examine the things that we have done while in the body. Since we have been Christians, and it's not going to be one of those deals where, you know, you didn't help the old lady across the street, so you take the slide down to hell. No, it's not like that at all. It's more of receiving rewards or not receiving rewards. Salvation is already done. You're in heaven. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. But there's even greater blessings for those who have done those things that Christ has expected of you and asked you to do out of love for him. And when we do that, we will be rewarded. It almost seems unfair because if he prepares us and then does the work in us, for it's God who works in us first to will and then to do of his good pleasure. So if he gives us the will to do it, the will didn't, I didn't even have the will to do it, but he causes me to will to do it. And then he causes me to do it, and then he rewards me for it. It doesn't seem fair, does it? I like that. I like the fact that it's not fair, because God chooses what's fair or not. And he's like, that's good, that's good, that's good. Remember when you did that, and I put it on your heart and you did it? You didn't even hesitate. You just went out and did it. Ah, rewards for you, and you'll put a crown on your head, and and that, it'll be a big deal then. It may not seem like a big deal now, but when we get to glory, I would imagine those little rewards, or those rewards that are big, are going to mean a big deal to us, because we're going to take them off and say, God, you are the one. You are the one who caused me to will to do it, and even the grace to do it. And now I'm getting a reward. How's that possible? That is how good he is. Do you understand how good he is? Do you understand how much he loves you? He's a good God. You know what? And as a result of that, because he's so good to us, Let's purpose with all of our heart this week and beyond. Not even just this week, but I I would encourage you to, to take stock of your own life and your heart and say, God, I am done. I'm done with the stuff that I know is wrong. I'm done with this and I'm done with that. And listen, if you fall into it again, what do you do? Do you have a pity party? No, you confess it and return from it. And if you fall into it again, what do you do? Throw in the towel? No, you confess it, and you get back up again. And you continue going. And if somewhere down the road you fall into it again, what do you do? Throw in the towel? I'm just a mess. And the devil's going, yeah, you are a mess. No, you confess it, and you get back up again. The righteous man falls seven times, and he gets back up again. Don't ever let him kick you and keep you down there. That's not God's heart. It's not his will. Regardless of what you feel, regardless of what anybody says, let the word of God be the truth and get up off the ground, confess it, and move on. And God will go. (laughs) He's your biggest cheerleader. 
Isn't that wonderful? Is he the God of the second chance? Is he the God of the third chance? Is he the God of the tenth chance? I'm perfect, well, not a perfect example, but I am an example of someone who probably has over 100 or 200 chances. And he's done it in me. And he's done it in you too. Because I know you guys are no, probably no better than I am, at least I think. Let's stand. Let's praise him. Huh. Lord, we thank you so much for this day. Thank you for so much for the, the enablement of your spirit. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for just giving us this body, Lord, this, this group of believers here today, Lord. I'm so thankful, Lord, to be in this body and I'm so glad for everyone here, Lord. Would you please, Lord, in your goodness and grace, would you pour out your spirit upon every person here? Would you just love them so much that they would just find you irresistible in everything? Lord, that, that we would just find you irresistible, God. Would you do that work in us and fill us with purpose, with your purposes, and give us and cause us to will and then to do of your good pleasure Lord, we love you and we thank you for this time together. And I pray that you protect my brothers and sisters. Protect them physically, Lord, from the colds and the flus and all the other stuff, Father. Protect them spiritually from the hounds of hell that are coming after them. Protect them, Lord. Set a hedge about them and feed them and encourage them and bless them. And may we go out just with renewed vigor to a world that is dying that needs to hear the message that we know so well. We love you, God, and we thank you in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. Amen.